We're in, if you can guess it, the book of Ephesians. And we're plowing our way through the book of Ephesians. We saw last week, actually the last three weeks, we've been dealing with the believer's identity in Christ. We've seen that Paul starts off by calling us saints, holy ones, because we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is what is true about us. We are placed in the Holy One, and so we are holy. We're placed in the Beloved, and so we are loved. We're placed in the Spotless One, and so we are spotless. And that One is Jesus Christ. And that is our identity. That's who we are. That is our essence. That's the most true thing you can say about us. And I can't stress enough how important it is that we let that biblical truth transform us. We live every day swimming through an ocean of lies that tell us a lot of different things about who we are, what our worth is, what we're capable of, what we're not capable of. And to the extent that we believe the lies that are in this ocean of deception that we swim in every day, to the extent that we believe those and receive that and internalize it, we live according to that. And we never cash in on and enjoy the full dynamism that is there in Christ. What needs to happen is for us to be transformed by the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ and for our minds to be fixed on that morning, noon, and night, to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, to let that be a part of our everyday thinking, our everyday consciousness. Because the Word of God as we hide it in our heart, the truth of God as we hide it in our heart confronts the deception and, that's, and that transforms us. All that's in the first three verses of the first chapter. This is a good book. Now we're going to move on, and Paul is going to talk to us a little bit about, in a more particular way, what some of the blessing that we've received in Christ is. Actually, the next ten verses are all one sentence in Greek. Paul gets carried away here, and it's pretty great. I have a lot in common with Paul. When I, when I get a sentence going, I, I can't take a breath to stop, and that's why my sentences tend to blend into one another. Well, that's how Paul wrote, and that's what Ephesians chapter 1 is really all about. Let's read verses 4 and 5. He's told us that we're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now he's going to explain this to us. Verse 4. For he, that is God the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world. The Father chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ in accordance with his good pleasure and will. Sounds a whole lot like what Paul's going to say in about five verses. Look at verse 11 if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> Paul says this, In Christ, in him, we are also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We've been predestined according to him who works out everything in conformity with his will. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that who we are in you is all good news. It's all good news. It's the best news. We couldn't make it better if we tried. We couldn't conceive of anything better and the good news of who we are in Christ Jesus because of what you've done for us. And Lord, this is part of the good news. But i got to confess that it's tough. 
And Lord, this has been a passage that has confused many people and has brought even a sense of consternation, sometimes even despair, into the hearts of people. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, clarity would be given to us this morning, truth would be given to us, that we could see the good news of this passage. Make it come alive to us, Lord. Produce at least enough understanding in us, Lord God, that we can love you more fully and appreciate you more deeply. But we need your Spirit to do it. My words can't do it, Lord. We need your Spirit to be here. In your name we pray. Amen. This is a passage of scripture that, in fact, has uh, been very controversial. Uh, it's caused to a lot of people, to a lot of believers, a certain amount of anxiety, not least of whom is me. In years gone past, I, I can ask my wife, I, I take my theology very seriously. And this, this, this passage and passages like them used to keep me up at night. Not just keep me up at night, but tick me off all through the day. And I would have fights with God and wrestle with God. And I've struggled with this whole thing a great deal. What I want to share this morning is, is how I've come to resolve the issue that is in this passage. The question is, what does Paul mean when he says that we're chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world? And what does Paul mean when he says we we're predestined in Christ to be sons of God? On the one hand, that can make me feel really good because I want to think that I'm one of the chosen and I'm one of the predestined ones. I feel good. I feel lucky. I feel like I just won the lottery. But there's also a part of me that is troubled by this whole thing. If I was chosen before the foundation of the world, then all of a sudden, and if my being a believer is the result of my being chosen and predestined, all of a sudden I feel kind of like a robot. I feel like everything about me, if everything is predestined according to God's will and everything that happens is God's will, I feel like right now I'm a robot. I'm, I, I, I'm an automaton. I don't, actually don't know what a robot feels like, but whatever it feels like, I, I, I feel like that. I feel like, like everything about me is programmed. You see what I'm saying? Every word I'm saying right now, every thought that I'm thinking right now, every behavior I'm doing right now, for better or for worse, is a result of God having written a script about it 10 trillion billion years ago. So I feel kind of like, you know, and now we shall preach, I believe. I, I, but yet I believe that my ability to make decisions and to choose things is part of my personhood. Being free is, is the essence of what it is to be a human being. Take away our freedom, and we are automatons. But that reading of the verse makes it feel like we're, we're simply automatons. We're simply robots. At least it does to me. It also raises this question. Well, you know, I'm happy God chose me, but what about the people that God didn't choose? See, if I'm a believer because God chose me, then that must mean that other people aren't a believer because God didn't choose them. And again, one part of me feels kind of lucky. <laughs> but another part of me begins to wonder about all those other people. They didn't stand a chance. From the foundation of the world, it was predestined that they were going to not believe that they were going to go to hell. They're being punished for what they were predestined to do. I don't get it. That, that causes some problems here. In fact, if everything in this whole history is, is a working out of God's perfect will, everything happens according to how God plans it, I begin to have a lot of problems in my brain about my picture of God because that would mean, I would think, that 
the cancer that you've got is predestined. And the earthquake and the famines and the storms and the tornadoes and the starving children and the kidnapped children and Auschwitz and Dachau and the Holocaust and every war that's ever been fought and every murder that's ever been committed and every rape that's all been committed has all been part of God's predestined script and it couldn't have happened other than it, than, than it was written to happen. And all of a sudden I'm wondering, wait a minute, I thought God was for righteousness and not for evil. How did he, why did he predestine the evil? At least it causes me a lot of issues with my problems with God. It's kind of like, you know, if I were walking down the, the road and I love my wife and I think I know my wife and I love her because I think I know her. I love her character. I love everything about her. But if we were walking down the street someday and, and there was a blind person there selling pencils and if she were to spit on the guy, you know, I'd go, honey, what did, why'd you do that? Because that seems out of character for you. You're not the type of person that usually, I love you now. I'm not, I'm not questioning you because I don't love you. I do love you. I'm questioning you because I love you. This doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would do because you're just a loving person. You don't go around spitting on blind people selling pencils on street corners. And then she would say, I guess you never knew me, you know. Well, this is how it is with God. It's like, wait a minute, God, you're all good, you're all holy, you're all wise, you're all perfect, and yet Dachau was predestined by you? And people going to hell was predestined by you? There are, let me just say this before we get into it. There is a widespread teaching, many, many people believe it, that God predestines some to go to heaven. And what this verse means is that some are predestined to go to heaven and some are predestined to go to hell, and everything is predestined in between. Everything is just as God planned it to be. It comes out of a school of thought in the 16th and 17th century called Calvinism. I have a lot of great friends who are Calvinists. A lot of my colleagues at Bethel College are Calvinists. They believe everything was predestined. And I respect them immensely, and they believe what they believe because they, they believe that that's what Scripture teaches, and I respect them for that. And we love each other in the Lord, and we fight like cats and dogs because I am not a Calvinist of any sort. But I want to share with you some of the issues I have with that interpretation and then give you a different interpretation of that because to many modern readers, it looks like Paul is saying just that. We were predestined, they were not, nana, nana, nana. Um, and God just sort of went eeny, meeny, miny, mo. There's a divine lottery before the foundation of the world and we happened to get in and other people didn't happen to get in. Here are the problems I have with that, with, with Calvinism. Four quick problems. Number one, one central teaching of Scripture, I think it's a foundational teaching of Scripture, is that... We are to go out into the whole world and tell people that they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You find this, this emphasis throughout the New Testament and even throughout the Old Testament that you need to believe to be saved. It's faith that brings you in a right relationship with the Lord. So the Bible says that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him, whoever would believe, put their trust in Christ, would not perish but have everlasting life. The thrust there is on the need to believe. And whoever believes is saved. And so you find in the Bible a constant emphasis and a sense of urgency telling people that they need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter on the day of Pentecost, when the people said, what must we do? He preached a sermon to the Jews and the Jews saw that they were guilty and they go, what should we do? He says, repent, believe and be baptized. This is a decision that you've got to make. A decision that you've got to make. And throughout the Bible, we have this dilemma placed before human individuals. You, you have a choice. You can either believe, choose to accept the Lord, or you can choose to go, and go your own way, but it's up to you. And eternal life hangs upon that decision. And so there's always a sense of urgency in, in, in the Bible. In the book of Acts, 
some 65 times you read this, Paul or Peter or Philip or Stephen or one of the apostles saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. But that's a decision you've got to make. It's a choice you've got to make. Now, you can't do it without God's help. We know that. Without the Holy Spirit, we would always choose against the Lord. Still, there's an area of our life where we have to surrender that to the Lord. And I can't make any sense out of any of that if, in fact, some have been predestined to believe and some have been predestined not to believe. How can we go into the highways and byways and compel people to believe if some of them are pre-programmed not to believe? And why would God send them to hell for not believing if, in fact, they're predestined not to believe? It'd be like me creating a, a talking doll, one of these chatty patty dolls or whatever they are, and then, and then breaking off its head when it talks. And if the doll could think, it would say, hey, wait a minute, I'm just doing what you created me to do. Yeah, but you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Okay, number one, there's a, the emphasis is on believing. And that assumes that there's freedom on the part of human beings. Secondly, you find throughout the Bible, at least as I read the scripture, that, that, that scripture presupposes that human beings are free moral agents. We have the power to choose right. We have the power to cho choose wrong. We have the capability of choosing to follow God. We have the capability of choosing to reject God. That power lies within us, and we're not pre-programmed to go one way or the other. That's why we're responsible. If we were pre-programmed to do what we're going to do, how could we be responsible? You don't spank a kid for being born a male instead of a female. It wasn't his fault. You don't spank somebody or punish them or put them in prison because they have blonde hair instead of dark hair. That's out of their control. And whatever's out of your control, you're not responsible for. We're morally responsible precisely because sin and holiness is in our control. We, therefore, can't blame our genes on all of our problems. Our, our genetic code influences us, but it does not determine us. And our social environment that we're raised in influences us, but it doesn't determine us. And the demonic forces that are in this world influence us, but they don't determine us. And even the Holy Spirit in the world influences us, but does not determine us. There's some degree of freedom that we have. And so the Lord, you always find the Lord doing this before Israel in the Old Testament putting before them the path of life and the path of death. And, and he says, Deuteronomy 28, if you, choose, if you choose to follow me, choose to follow my ways, here's the blessings. If you choose to go your own way, here are the curses you're going to bring upon yourself, but it's your decision. Joshua says to the Israelites in, in Joshua chapter 24, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose, you've got to make a decision. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And so it is throughout Scripture. The emphasis there is on you as a free person needing to make a decision. In fact, the Lord says this in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 11. The Lord says this. He tells Jeremiah, If at any time I give a prophecy of destruction on an evil nation, if that, if that evil nation then repents of its evil, I'll repent of the prophecy that I was going to bring against them. But if there's a good nation that I promised blessing on, and they turn evil, then I will revoke the good I was going to do to them and bring destruction on them. That tells me, if that verse tells me anything, it tells me that what human beings do, how human beings choose, how human beings behave, is at least not in every instance pre-programmed. We're not just working out a blueprint that was written in the, from the foundation of the world. We've got a moral decision-making capability, and God responds to us as we respond to Him. There's moral responsibility there. That's why sin is punishable, because we could and we should and we ought to do otherwise. 
A third thing that I find in Scripture is this. That God, because we are free people that God has created and given the gift of freedom, God doesn't always get what he wants in our lives. Hell is a testimony to the fact that God doesn't always get what he wants. What I find God being like throughout Scripture is a God who, out of love, is so great, so powerful, so magnificent, that, and he's so secure in himself that he gives us some say-so and is sometimes himself frustrated by that say-so, frustrated by our unwillingness to follow him, frustrated by our, our rebellion against him, because he's a God of love. And so, if, for example, in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, you find a beautiful illustration of what God is like towards us. God is frustrated with Israel because Israel has been a wayward nation. Israel has been committing spiritual adultery by chasing after false gods. And so God wants to somehow get through to them how he feels about this. So he calls Hosea, his holy prophet, and tells Hosea to go take a prostitute for a wife. Go marry a prostitute. It's the only time in the Bible that was ever commanded. And have a couple kids with this prostitute. And God knows that this prostitute before too long is going to go back out in the world and start sleeping around. And she does. And then the Lord tells Hosea, you feel your heart breaking? You feel a sense of frustration? That's how I feel. And I want you to communicate that to Israel. I want you to go out into the red light district and knock on doors looking for your wife, calling out for her, begging her, pleading her to come home. And show the world, though it will bring humiliation on yourself, show the world how your heart is breaking for this prostitute wife of yours. And then tell Israel this. This is how my heart bleeds after you. This is how my heart breaks after you. Because I love you. And I, my heart breaks when I see you chasing after these false gods that will bring destruction on you. In fact, the Lord gives this promise in Hosea chapter 11. The Lord says this, Israel, someday I'm going to make you mine. Someday I'm going to win you back. I will, and he uses this word, I will lure you back unto myself. The word there means to entice or to make attractive. It's the word that's used when a, when a man is courting a woman and a woman courting a man. Uh, it almost it doesn't mean seduce, but it's that kind of a, you know, attraction thing. But this isn't the kind of thing that a God who writes the blueprint from the foundation of the world would have to do. If God simply called all the shots and that's the way it was, then God would be more like a caveman who goes into the cave and says, me want woman, and grabs her by the hair and walks and drags her out. Me want you, me get you. Bam, I predestined that you're going to be mine. I am yours. But that's not how God operates. God tries to win us by showing us his beauty. He wins us by showing us his grace. He wins us by showing us the, the, the reality that he's willing to pursue us even when we're running away from him. And his heart breaks when that doesn't happen. And that doesn't, I can't make any sense of that if, in fact, the whole thing is being carried out the way God predestined it to go. How can God be frustrated over a plan that he predestined to happen? And the fourth and final thing, and for me the most important thing is this. If, in fact, some have been selected from the foundation of the world to go to heaven and other people have been created for the purpose of going to hell, if that's true, then i got major problems in my understanding of God's love. Because it means that God is not a God of universal love. He, does, he simply does not love everybody. And consistent Calvinism says that. God loves the elect. God despises the reprobate. And that before the foundation of the world. But see, the understanding of God that I get from Jesus Christ and from the rest of Scripture is that God is a God of universal love, unequivocal love for every person that God creates. That's why he created them. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. 
The Lord tells Ezekiel, I take no delight. I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. This isn't something I enjoy, but rather I call all people to come unto repentance. Hell isn't something God plans. Destruction isn't something that God wills. The wicked being punished isn't something that God delights in. It is the natural consequence of sin in a, in, a, in a universe that has a moral order to it, but it's not the thing that God desires. He doesn't take any pleasure in the, in the destruction of the wicked. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord says this, a very important passage. He says this, The Lord is not willing, it's not his heart, it's not his desire, that anyone should perish, but rather that all would come to repentance. Praise God. God's heartbeat is that every person that is ever born will come to whatever extent that they understand God, that they'd come to surrender to that and repent of that and receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not willing. He goes on record as saying, I don't want anyone to perish. I don't want anyone in hell. I don't want anyone to be destroyed by their own sin. I want life for everybody. That's why I created them for that very purpose. And my heart loves them and I pursue them. And that's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, very important verse. John says that the Lord died not for our sin only, but for the sin of the whole world, for the sin of the entire world. The blood that was shed on Calvary is sufficient to wipe perfectly clean, slate clean, every person that is ever born. Because Jesus Christ took upon himself all the sin of the entire world when he died on Calvary. The most important thing that I got to know in my life is that that applies to me. You see, if you tell me that there's a lottery in heaven, a kind of an eeny, meeny, miny, mo kind of deal before the world ever began. And some people are in and some people are out. And some people, God's got it in for some people, maybe even the majority of people before they're ever born. You tell me that, then I got something to worry about my whole life. Because I don't usually don't win lotteries, I don't win games, I, I don't win contests. Actually, I don't play them, that's why I never win. You can't play, you can't win if you don't play. That's a waste of time. But I got enough sin in my life, I got enough problems in my environment, enough bad things have happened to me that if I have room, a crack in the door for me to worry about whether, God, whether or not God's got it in for me, I'm going to think that God's got it in for me. You following? And a lot of you are in the same situation. Most of us sometimes are inclined to think that God's got it in for us even though we don't believe that. You know, like some days things, everything goes wrong. And you, do you ever do this? Maybe I'm the only one who's so mature that I do this. But you think, God, okay, what is it? What do you want? You want me to swear? Is that what you want? You're trying to get me to swear. Are you, you're tempting me. <laughs> I, I know what you're trying to do, God. Well, I'm not going to give you the pleasure. I'm not going to do that. You know, you think, God's got it. Sometimes it feels like that. God's got it in for you. Well, if this view is right, God's got it eternally in for you. <laughs> eternally. I'm going to get you. Why? Because you're created the way I created you. <laughs> I need to know, I need to know that when the Bible says that God so loved the world, that the world applies to me, that the world applies to you. And I got to know that when God says whosoever believes in him could have everlasting life and not perish, that it includes me. I got to know that when Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, that when the Lord says, I have a banquet table, come and get, uh, get food and drink for free. Whosoever will, let them come. I got to know that that whosoever includes me. And I got to know that that whosoever includes my kids. One of the scariest things about this doctrine is that even if I'm sure that I got in, that I won the lottery, my kids might be created to go to hell. And I'm supposed to love God and praise God and think he's all the more beautiful for doing that. I can't do that. That's not in me to do. And I don't, I don't see anything in Scripture that tells me to do that because the Bible says he's not, willing, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life. And that includes me and it includes my kids. And that's why I'm thankful that the Lord communicates to us in a lot of different ways throughout Scripture that God is love. 
praise God. First John chapter 4, I think it's verse 24 or verse 14 or somewhere on there. Chapter 4, look it up. God is love. There's only two things the Bible says unequivocally that God is. God is spirit and God is love. God is love. And what that means, you put all these verses together and you come up with this. That the reason why you exist right now, if you're worried about whether or not God loves you, and I know some of you are, if you're worried about whether God loves you, consider this. You wouldn't exist unless God loved you. God created you out of love. He created the world out of love. Everything God does, he does out of love. Even his justice comes out of his love. His love is his main mode of operation. And every breath you breathe, that next breath you're breathing right this very second, you know why you just did that? It's because God loves you and he gives His love holds you in existence. And the next thought you think and the next heartbeat that you've got is a gift of God. And why does he give you that gift? Because he loves you. If you're ever worried about whether or not God loves you, ask yourself this very profound question. Do I exist? Because if you exist, there's only one reason why you exist, and that is because God loves you. He may detest what you do. He may detest how you're living. He may despise the sin in your life. But you, in terms of your potential, you as a being created by God, he loves to the point that he's willing to die for you. And not just for you, but for me and for every person in this auditorium and for every American and for every African and for every Asian and for every Latin American and a person down in the Amazon and the Eskimo and for the righteous and the unrighteous and the religious and the non-religious. He dies for them all. He spends his, his blood on, on all of us. That every person who simply will accept it is counted in. Is counted in. The one thing we, we should never have to worry about is whether God loves us. That he's gone on record as saying he does. Take him at his word. Okay, enough about how not to interpret the passage. How do you interpret the passage? Well then, Mr. Boyd, what does Paul mean when he says that we are chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, predestined to be in Christ? Predestined to be sons of God in Christ. Predestined, chosen, there you got the words. How do you get out of this eeny, meeny, miny, moe kind of a thing? In a nutshell, let me say this, and I'll try to explain it. I don't believe that any Jew in the first century, any Jewish person in the first century, would have taken Paul to mean, by these verses here, I don't think that they would take Paul to mean that individual, some individuals were predestined to be in and some individuals were predestined to be out. You know, a little aside here. This is what I love preaching, this is why I love preaching through the Word of God like this, going verse by verse. Because some days, you know, you can just, it's simple, and you just proclaim it, and you go hallelujah and shout. Other days, you gotta dig, you got to dig into it, you know? you got to wrestle with the text. It's kind of tough. But if God took the time to inspire it, we've got to take the time to try to understand it. And, and this is the kind of stuff that I would just assume kind of like, you know, well, let's get around that one, you know, yeah, those messy issues. Let's, let's talk about some good stuff. You know, th th this is how you grow. This is how you expand. This is how you learn the Word of God. It's by taking apart piece by piece and wrestling with it. So I'm glad we're having the chance to do that, just, just so you know. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> now let's see if we can come up with an answer. Actually, I was just stalling so I could come up with an answer. Okay, i got to think of something here. Oh, it's time to quit. Sorry. Here's what the Word of God does not mean. What it actually means, I don't have a clue. Go figure it out. I don't believe anyone in the first century would, would understand this verse individualistically. We are very individualistic. We don't think of you know, America as a corporate whole. We think of individual Americans. And so we're inclined to take these verses individualistically. The Jews of the first century had a concept of what is called corporate election that I want to explain to you. 
corporate election. What I mean by that is this. Hang with me on this. It's an important concept. The Jews understood that they, as a nation, were a chosen people. God, many times in the Old Testament, says this. In fact, a few times in the New Testament says this, that the nation of Israel, as a nation, is chosen by God. God's select people. God's predestined people. God chose them as a nation. But the Jews also understood that that didn't mean that every person who was born a Jew was necessarily saved. As a nation, they were elect. But every individual Jew had to own that for themselves. The opportunity was there, but they had to make an act of faith to appropriate what was given to Israel for themselves. So Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, not everyone who is born a Jew is an heir of the promise of Abraham. To be an heir of the promise of Abraham, to be a part of the chosen Israel, you have to believe, put your faith in the God of Israel. And that not every Jew is willing to do. The election, the chosenness, the predestination applies to the whole group, not to the individuals, except insofar as the individuals own what, go, what goes with the group. Let me use a different illustration, because that one I don't think was sinking. On July 10th, we're going to have a picnic. And I hope you all come to it. It's going to be a great picnic. We're going to have about 25 baptisms. We had a baptism class yesterday, and it was really great, and people are excited about this. And we're going to have chicken at the picnic from uh, Country Homes or something like that. And it's great chicken. Um, isn't it cool the way I squeeze in commercials in the middle of my sermons? <laughs> so I hope you all come. Let us know so we know how, many, how much chicken to order. Now, maybe that some of you don't like chicken. You don't like chicken. And so at the, at, the, uh, uh, at the picnic, you forgot about the sermon, and you come up to me and you say, Greg, when was it decided, or if you're being religious, you'll say, when was it predestined that we were going to eat chicken? Who decided that we were going to have to eat chicken at this picnic? I hate chicken. Why couldn't you have ordered steak and lobsters or something like that? And knowing how mad you are, I'd say, well, Steve, Steve decided it, and he decided it four weeks ago. Four weeks ago, and we'd, we'd announce, we could all say together as a creed at the picnic, four weeks ago it was decided that we would have chicken. But now look it, follow me on this. It wasn't decided four weeks ago that John was going to have chicken, or it wasn't decided that Mary was going to have chicken, but it was decided that if John and Mary were going to come to the picnic, that they were going to have chicken. And now that they're at the picnic, they can say it was decided that we would have chicken. You can say that chicken was chosen for you when you align yourself with that group for whom chicken was chosen. <laughs> Hallelujah! Let's see if I can make it still more confusing. Peter, back up, back up, back up, peppers. Are you getting the concept there? Maybe Jesus can make it a little clearer. Lord, would you bail me out of this one? No. In Matthew 22, he tells this parable. He tells this parable. Matthew 22. The punchline of the parable is the, the saying that many people have had a lot of problems with. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. That sounds like God's up there going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I call everybody, but really I'm only choosing a few. I pretend like I want everybody, but really I just want a few. It's like, what do you mean many are called and few are chosen? Well, here's the parable that explains it. There was a mighty king, a great king. This king was going to have a great banquet, a banquet, best banquet in the, in the, in the country. 
And so he initially invites all the people that kings usually invite. He invites all the hobnobbers, the wealthy people, the well-to-do, the famous people, you know, all those people who are in a society, the kind of people that a king would normally invite. He invites them. But Jesus tells us in this parable they're all too busy. They got things going on. They got to plant some seeds. They got to go to a marriage. They got to go to a funeral, whatever. And so they're too busy to come. And the servants of the king come back and say, sorry, king, there's no takers. So then the king makes a decision. It's a radical decision. It's a decision like kings normally never make. The king says, look it, I want my house to be full. And I got a great banquet table here, and I want to feed some people. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out in the highways and out into the byways, and you invite whoever you find to come to this banquet. Invite both the good and the bad. Uh, the Luke version tells us, invite the good and invite the bad. Invite the thieves, invite the prostitutes, invite the outcasts. If anyone will accept this invitation, they can come. And so the servants go out there and they invite everybody and sure shooting, they come. These people aren't too busy for a supper with the king. You kidding me? They know that they're losers and this is a chance to win, so they go to the king's supper. And the king even supplies his own garment robes because these are not the kind of people that normally can afford garment robes. So he robes them in, in, uh, in, in uh, banquet garments. And there's a nice sermon there too that I'm going to pass by. Anyways, it's when they're all there that Jesus concludes by saying, Many are called, but few are chosen. What was he getting at? The king had the right to choose anyone he wanted. Because he's the king, no one tells him what to do. He can choose anyone he wants to choose. And if he wants to commit the radical scandal of choosing to invite anybody who is willing to come, he can do it, and so he did it. He called many people. He went to the rich. He went to the righteous. He went to all the hobnobbers, but they didn't want it. So then he went to everybody else, and they did want it. And so when they come, the king says, you are my chosen people. Why? Because you accepted my invitation, and I chose to accept anyone who accepted my invitation. Many were called, but few are chosen. And that, I submit to you, is exactly what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 1. Exactly what's going on. God, from the foundation of the world, made a radical decision, an incredible decision, an unthinkable decision for a God to make. He decided that he wanted to manifest his glory. We're going to talk about that next week more. But he wanted to show his grace off. Before the world ever began, he said, you know what? I want a mirror. I want a mirror that's going to radiate uh, my light. It's going to radiate my glory. The more of me there is, the better. So I'm going to create a mirror. And I'm going to create a people. This mirror is going to consist of a bunch of people that are going to radiate my grace and radiate my holiness and radiate my love and radiate my peace and radiate my characteristics. He made a decision, I'm going to have a bride. That is predestined. No way am I not going to have that. That's the purpose for the world. The church is the purpose for the creation. And then he says, you know what? I'm going to take this, this here's how I'm going to make this mirror. I'm going to take these people and I'm going to bless them with every, I mean every. Michael, the archangel, did you hear me right? I said every. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1, 3. And not only that, but I'm going to place them in Christ Jesus. Here's the most radical part of it. I'm not going to wait for them to make themselves worthy and righteous and holy for me to do this for them because I know that they're not going to be like that. I'm going to extend this opportunity to be part of my mirror, part of my bride, part of my church to anybody but anybody who simply will accept it. I'm going to offer it to whosoever will. If they'll just trust and what I'm going to do for them, then they qualify to be put in Christ Jesus. And as we saw last week, when you're put in Christ Jesus, what is true about Jesus now applies to you. You become holy because you're in the Holy One. You become beloved because you're in the Beloved One. You become spotless because you're in the One who is spotless. And he decides to do the whole thing from the foundation of the world. 
He creates the whole thing, the whole plan from the foundation of the world. And so what? Here's the thing. God decides, he predestines that whoever is in Jesus Christ is going to be holy, is going to be spotless, it's going to be true. He chooses that group of people. He chooses it. And so now that we are in, those of us who have accepted the invitation, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can now say that we are chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. We went to the picnic, and so we can say it was predestined that we'd eat chicken. We went to the banquet, supper of the lamb, and so we can say we were chosen, predestined to be sons of God, to be children of God. And so everything that God ever chose for his bride now applies to me individual, individually because I'm in the bride. Every blessing everyone to give to his church now applies to me because I'm in the church. You're following this whole thing. And so he predestines that if you are in Jesus Christ, this is predestined. It's set ahead of time. It's a certainty. It's a guarantee that you are going to be a son of God, that you are a son of God. And Romans 8, 28 tells us another thing, that it's predestined that you're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that when he appears, we're going to see him as he is, for we're going to be like him. Everything, all the treasure, all the riches, all the inheritance, all the glory, all the joy, all the peace, every spiritual blessing that God put in this reservoir now applies to you from the foundation of the world because you have chosen to receive it. And the only thing God asks, the only thing God asks is that you don't push it away. Anybody who is willing to put their trust in it can have it. There's no qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts. Do you receive it? Do you want it? Do you know that you're one of the people in the highways and the byways? Do you know that you're one of the beggars? Do you know that you're one of the lepers? Do you know that you're one of the prostitutes? Do you know that you can't make a claim of holiness before God on your own? And therefore, are you willing to say, either Jesus Christ is my righteousness or I'm a lost cause? You see, there are a lot of people who, who, who hear this. And like the people in the parable that Jesus told, they say, you know, I'm too busy. Ah, it's not for me. Yeah, it was a nice invitation, but it's not for me. I'm too busy making a lot of money. I'm too busy, uh, you know, getting a nice house. I'm too busy with my nice car. I'm too busy on Sunday morning sleeping in. I'm too busy doing this. I'm too busy doing that. I get life from my own religion. I get life from my own philosophy. I get life from my own achievements. I don't really need this Christian business. Or maybe they do take a little bit of the Christian business just to further dress themselves up in their own righteousness. Either way, they're rejecting the invitation. The invitation is to everyone like me and everyone like you who knows that they're beggars, that they are not worthy to be invited to the king's table, but you are worth inviting to the king's table. How do you know it? Because the king invited you. The king invited you. And you become one of God's chosen people, predestined from the foundation of the world when you simply accept everything that God predestined from the foundation of the world. It becomes true for you when you accept it. One of the most beautiful things that I think about this whole passage is this. It tells us that before the world began, the Lord knew exactly what he was getting into by creating us. This Christian stuff, this wasn't a second thought. This wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like God was up there wringing his hands and people are sitting and then he goes, what are we going to do now? I, I didn't plan on this. This is terrible, you know. Jesus, go down there and die for him, okay? Just do something. We gotta, you know, we're really in a mess here. This wasn't a second in thought. You know, like, now what are we going to do? The law didn't work. Ah, we'll send the Spirit. God's not up there panicking, wondering what's going to happen. Before the foundation of the world, the Bible says in Revelations chapter 13, verse 8. The Lord's giving me a lot of verses this morning. For the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. What does that mean? In the mind of God, Jesus Christ was dead before the show ever got going. And risen before the show ever got going. Because the Lord knew that in creating a world of people who have the capability of love, 
You, create, you have to create a world where they have the possibility of freedom. And when you create a world of free moral agents, you're going to suffer. Love in a free world is painful. We all know that from experience. Even Buddha said that. Love and suffering are synonymous. He therefore thought you shouldn't love. <laughs> Wrong. You got to love, but it's painful, even for God. He's so great and so powerful that he makes himself vulnerable to the pain of love. And he knew when he created the world that he was going to have to die. If he wanted this bride to be holy and spotless, he knew that he would have to provide the means by which that happened. Because we free creatures, in a fallen world especially, never would have been able to do that on our own. And yet he did it anyways. He did it anyways. He thought we were worth it. None of us here this morning are worthy of it. We're not worthy of it. But we are, in God's eyes, worth it. He died for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. He died for us. That we could be part of the picnic where the chicken is served. That we could be part of those for whom it is predestined that we're going to look like Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're here as a believer, rejoice. Rejoice. You belong to the Lamb. And your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And everything that God ever promised his son from the foundation of the world now applies to you. Rejoice. Begin to enjoy it. Be transformed by it. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Everything I just said about all this chicken, all the blessing in heaven, the chicken of heaven, applies to you. It can apply to you if you'll simply accept it. And I would encourage you, I would implore you to come forward this morning. God loves you and God's calling you right now. He's pulling at your heart right now for you to give your heart to him. And that's all he asks. That's all he asks. And the minute you put your trust in Jesus Christ, bam, you're part of the church, part of the body. All this predestination stuff applies to you. But the ball's in your court. And this morning I pray that you'd follow the leading of the Spirit and give your heart to the Lord. There'll be two or three people up here who would love, would really love to pray with you. And it's just a, a little prayer that the Bible says we need to pray. And I encourage you to come forward and accept the Lord as your Savior. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you have chosen us in Christ from the foundation of the world. I thank you, Lord God, that your love has been towards us from the foundation of the world, that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, I thank you for your spirit that has compelled each of us to put our faith and trust in you. I pray, pray Lord, this morning that if there are those here this morning who don't know you, have never committed their lives to you, I pray, Lord, that this morning would be their birthday and they would do just that, that there'd be one more guest at your supper table. Call them forward, Lord, I pray in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.